You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn together to the Word of our God. We take our scripture reading this morning from the Gospel according to Luke. First of all, we'll read from Luke 4, the verses 1 to 15. Then Luke 22, the verses 39 to 46, and all of that in connection with our text, which comes from the sixth petition, Lord's Day 52. We begin then with Luke chapter 4. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread to the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And we turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. We have come to the sixth and the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Let us turn together to the Lord's Day 52. Question and answer 127 for an explanation of that last petition. 
What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves, we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Will thou therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the world in which we live is a world filled with temptation. Tomorrow, any number of you young people will be going back to school, and perhaps a test has been scheduled. And if so, you may well be tempted to cheat Many of you will also be going back to work tomorrow. And then there is also and always the temptation to steal from your employer in one way or another. A lot of you are married. And that brings with it the temptation to be unfaithful to your wife or to your husband. And indeed, beloved, if you think of it, temptation really is everywhere. No matter where you turn, what you do, or who you meet, there are all of these temptations, temptations to lie, to slander, to deceive, to lust, and so forth. You may look outside And the sun is shining, as it has been doing, thankfully, over the last number of weeks, a fair bit. And you may think that life really is, especially in springtime, a piece of cake. What could possibly go wrong or be wrong? There's not a cloud in the sky or a threat or a danger to be seen anywhere. And yet what appears to be, and what really is, are so often two different things. The visible world and the invisible world are often two contrasting worlds. What happens on the outside is not always an accurate reflection of what is happening on the inside. There can be temptation on the inside. There can be turmoil beneath the surface. There are dangers, threats, enemies and obstacles that cannot be seen with the naked eye. And they all have the potential to trip us up, to do us in, and to turn our lives upside down. Yes, and it is because of this, beloved, that there is a third great need in our life. Thus far, we have dealt with the need for bread, and the need for forgiveness. Or you can say, thus far, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has addressed our need for provision as well as our need for pardon. But there is a third need, a third pressing need, and that is the need for protection. 
And so now in this sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, our Savior is teaching us and reminding us of the need to pray every day for protection and safekeeping. And then you know his prime concern is not with our physical protection and safekeeping as much as it is with our spiritual protection. He wants his children to remain faithful to him, to live close to him, to live in step with him. He wants you and I to keep on track to stay the course, and to finally arrive at our destination. So, beloved, in light of that, I would like to preach to you this morning on the following theme, the sixth petition. Father, help us to prevail. And we pray this petition in view of the enemies, first of all, that confront us, the person who supports us, and the outcome that awaits us. Well, beloved, you can say that this prayer which our Lord Jesus Christ is still teaching us is not only very comprehensive because it touches on all of the main bases and necessities of life, but it's also very penetrating. And it shows that our Savior really does know us through and through. For example, he knows how important bread and material things are to our earthbound lives. He knows that our lives are so often a bundle of worries about things like money and bills that need to be paid and clothes that needed to be bought and things that have to be done. Money worries, it seems, are never far away. And I even dare say they're never far away no matter how much of the stuff that you have. And in addition, our Savior knows as well that it is hard for us to live our lives if and when we have a burdened conscience. If there are wrong things that we have done in our lives and not confessed, They tend, as the psalmist says in Psalm 32, to eat away at us. And as well, they tend to spoil almost everything. And they need to be addressed. And that usually means they need to be confessed, acknowledged, and forgiven. Only forgiveness has the power to bring back peace. But you know, there's also something else that our Savior knows, and it comes in this sixth and last petition. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are vulnerable. He knows that we are not infallible. Of course, this is a touchy point and something we don't readily admit to. Pride is probably the biggest hang-up in all of life. And pride will never, ever allow us to admit that we are weak or that we are vulnerable. 
Maybe some Christians out there are weak, but not me. I have plenty of self-confidence and self-control and self-esteem. I know how to deal with life, with the issues, with people, with circumstances. I am no pushover when it comes to dealing with opponents or obstacles. I know how to handle myself in all situations and in every circumstance. And you know, it sounds good, sounds impressive. But in reality, it does prove a few things. In the first place, it proves that you're a very poor judge of human nature, beginning with your very own nature. And secondly, it proves that you're a very poor student of the Scriptures, especially of the book of Proverbs. Doesn't it say, before a man's downfall, his heart is proud? Or when pride comes, then comes disgrace? Or pride goes before destruction? Or a man's pride brings him low? The Word of God says pride is not something you should cultivate in your life. You already have an overflowing abundance of it. At the same time, Scripture also says there is something much, much better than pride, and that is realism, biblical realism. You know, it's the realism of Psalm 103 which teaches us that we are but dust, and that we flourish only like a flower, and that when the wind comes, we are soon gone. And in the end, we are remembered no more. In spite of all of our conceit and pretensions. And it's also the realism of John 15 where we believers are compared to branches who need to always be in the vine if we are going to live and to grow and to bear fruit. And it's the realism of answer 127 of the catechism which says that in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot even stand for a moment. Because in ourselves we cannot stand. Why not? Because we are weak. And because the enemies are strong and numerous. And who are the enemies? Well, the catechism has, the authors of the catechism have studied the scriptures. And they've come up with three. The first enemy is obvious. It's the devil. That's no surprise, is it? No sooner do we open our Bibles to the first book of the Bible and, and we, we meet the devil. And indeed, all through the scriptures, we meet him and he's, he's always there, it seems, either visibly or invisibly, seeking to contradict, to undermine, to slander, to destroy the elect and the cause of the kingdom of God. 
He is his majesty's unloyal opposition. And that's obvious not just when you consider his, his tactics, but also his names. Scripture says he's the hinderer, the accuser of his brothers. The devil, the slanderer, the tempter, the adversary, the serpent, the drag. And as a matter of fact, there is not one really positive name or one positive thing to say about him. His entire aim and goal and purpose is negative. Destruction and downfall are his middle names. And you know that he is the great enemy is also obvious in terms of what he does when the Lord Jesus comes. You can see that, for example, clearly in the Gospel according to Luke, which we've read a part of together. Luke 4 describes the Lord Jesus coming. And really, when the Lord Jesus comes there in Luke 4, he is coming as the second Adam. And what is one of the first things that happens to him? The devil comes along and does everything he can to try to trip him up as he so successfully tripped up the first Adam. With the first Adam, he needed only one temptation to do him in. With the second Adam, he tries the first temptation, which really is all about obedience. And he fails. Then he tries a second temptation, which really is all about worship. And he fails again. And then after he tries a third temptation, which really is all about trust. Who do you trust? And he fails as well. Three strikes. And he's out. But he's not out completely. Who do you think comes back repeatedly in the ministry of our Lord? None other than the devil. If a direct approach fails, then he tries the indirect approach. He uses demons, he uses devils, he uses Pharisees and Sadducees. And he uses the cross. Yes, the devil also uses the cross. We read not only from Luke 4, we also read from Luke 22. What do you see there? We see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, agonizing. Agonizing over what lies ahead. Agonizing over the cup of suffering. Over the cross that looms on the horizon. And who do you think is working behind the scenes, turning up the screws and putting on the pressure? It's the devil again. Scripture even says it was the devil who tempts Judas to attack the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, beloved, he's still on the attack. Ultimately, he failed with Christ. But he so often makes inroads with us who follow Christ. Beloved, you can be sure that whenever you are being sorrowly tried and tempted, that the devil is there somewhere in the woodwork or what have you, 
trying his best to destroy you. You and I may have many friends in life, but never forget that we all, as, as God's children, have one persistent, constant, and implacable enemy. And that is the devil. And he never gives up. But alas, he's not the only enemy we have. We have a second scripture says, and it's called the world. Maybe the most clear thing here is to think of Lot's wife. You know what happened to Lot's wife, right? She refused to listen to the command of one of the angels who said to Lot and his family, flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere on the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But she stopped and she looked back and she became scriptures as a pillar of salt. Why did she become a pillar of salt? It was because she could not disconnect her life from the world in which she lived. In spite of all of its wickedness and licentiousness, Lot's wife loved Sodom. She loved its people. She loved its depravity. She loved its excitement and its nightlife. Lot's wife loved the world and the things of this world. Of course, it's true that the Bible uses the word world in different ways. Sometimes world refers to the created realm. Sometimes it refers to civilization at large. But there are also quite a few instances in Scripture where that expression or that word world refers to this fallen, sin-stained, debauched, depraved world. The world that stands opposed to God and to all the values of the kingdom of God. And on the outside, this world glitters. And it entices. But on the inside, this world so often tempts and destroys. It really is our second enemy. It's allied with the first enemy, the devil, and together they aim for our downfall. And I would say to you, beloved, don't be naive about this either. It strikes me that as Christians we can sometimes be so clueless. The world comes along with its toys, pleasures, pastimes and gadgets and it sucks us in. And now of course it's not all bad. So many of the things of this world have a positive side as well as a negative side to them. But our problem is that we so often fail to make proper use of the positive and we gravitate instead and succumb to the negative. 
Take the computer. The computer is both a positive and a negative invention. Positively, it can facilitate your work, streamline your business, speed up your homework, even a la Facebook keep you connected to your friends. Negatively, it can waste your time lead you to gambling sites, pornography sites, violent game sites. In short, here's an invention. But like so many inventions, it requires self-control and accountability. And without them, it's not going to remain positive by any stretch of the imagination. Well, beloved, the question so often then arises, do we always, when it comes to these things of the world, do we always exercise our critical faculties? Why is it that we so easily succumb to the negative? We let the world and its evil influences enter and prevail in our lives. Yes, and in the process, a third enemy comes into play as well. And it was the third enemy, well, it is surprise, surprise, it is our very own flesh. So often the devil and the world supply the ammunition, and then we proceed to shoot ourselves. Think of King David. Was it the devil who led Bathsheba that evening to bathe herself on the roof of her house? Was it a worldly desire to be noticed that led her to do it in full view of the royal palace? Whatever it was, There is no denying that David saw and he was smitten and he surrendered to his lust and he seduced her. He allowed his eyes and the desires of his flesh, of his own flesh, to conquer. Lust proved to be the final and the fatal flaw in his armor. Oh, and you know what happened to David really is a lesson for all of us. Our spirits may not be strong enough to deny our flesh. We all too easily and all too often allow our desires, our wants, our cravings, our lusts to dominate over our lives. And when they do, disaster strikes. Look at your own life, beloved. How often has that one word not done you in? How often has that one particular thought in your life not spelled disaster? Or that one action? You want to thrill 
and you reach for that drug. You desire and you reach for that woman or that man. You hunger for that thing, so you blow your money. Add it up, and what do you get? You get a weak and a vulnerable humanity. You get people like us who talk big, but act small. So, beloved, when you see that, is it then any wonder that our Savior says that also here we need to pray? In the view of our weaknesses and in the face of the onslaughts of the devil and the world and our own flesh, we need to pray. But what do we pray for? We need to pray that the Lord God, who rules and reigns over all things, even over the devil, the world, and our flesh, will not let us be tempted. In other words, that he will not let us be so pushed around and pressured that we succumb, that we surrender, that we fall. And then in praying this, we are not expecting God to spare us from being tested. To have your face being put to the test is not a bad thing. It so often strengthens us and assures us of the reality and the living quality of our faith. And it also brings us closer to our God and makes us more dependent upon His grace. So testing is fine, in a sense. It may not always be nice, but it is frequently necessary. Tempting, however, is another thing. It means allowing us to be tested to the point where we may well fail and fall compromise and capitulate, surrender and succumb. And that is what we want to be spared from. That is what we want to be able to withstand and to resist. But how? We'll have another look at Luke 4. There in connection with our Savior in the desert, we see Jesus and we see the devil. Do you also see someone else? Yes, someone else is there. Someone else who's great is there. That someone is called the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit... In the desert. Here he has just been commissioned by God the Father through the baptism of John the Baptist. And the Spirit is there. The Spirit who descended upon him in the form of a dove is there. 
And now this spirit leads him. And as a matter of fact, he does more than that. If you read the gospel according to Mark, you'll notice that Mark speaks even more aggressively. Mark says it was the spirit who drove him, who thrust him out into the desert. In other words, the Spirit is instrumental in seeing that he has this great confrontation with the devil as the second Adam. And something else. For look to at verse 14 of chapter 4. Once the confrontation is over, what does it say? It says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So if you ask, who equips? Who strengthens? Who helps him? Who enables him to triumph? It's none other than the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is here the great enabler and comforter and equipper. He empowers our Savior in the face of temptation. But He empowers not just Him, but also you and I. For has He not been promised to us? Has He not been given to us? Paul writes, Romans 5, 5, God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. The Spirit has been promised us. The Spirit has been given to us. But the Spirit also needs to be prayed for. As you face temptation, beloved, as you face various trials, ask the Father to spare you. But also ask Him to fill you up with the Spirit. Ask Him if you want in the words of the Catechism, will you therefore uphold and strengthen me by the power of the Holy Spirit so that in this spiritual war that I am in, I may not go down to defeat. Ask God. For the Spirit. And ask Him also for something else. Ask Him for the final victory. As we, as children of God, go through this life, we suffer our defeats and our setbacks. Also in this spiritual war that we're in, that's The reality, none of us wins all of the battles that we wage. As long, however, beloved, as we win the war. And we can win the war. We can win the complete victory. If you wonder how, well, turn, for example, to that most marvelous promise that The Apostle Paul gives us through the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There it says, God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Two things here, beloved. First of all, there is a limit to our temptations. And second, there is a way out of temptation. In short, God will protect us. He will care for us. He will help us. He will rescue us. You know, if ever there is a text to memorize and to commit to heart when it comes to this whole matter of spiritual warfare, it's this one. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It'll keep you focused. It'll give you hope. It'll keep you strong. And that's not all. For not only does, and not just does God give a way of escape, but He also provides a way to victory. Paul says that prayer not only provides protection, but prayer also provides ultimately promotion to glory. He urges the Thessalonian believers and us to look to God in faith. And he says that when we do so, when we look to God in faith, He will strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God, our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all His holy ones. Our God will strengthen our hearts. He will do it today. He will do it tomorrow. He will do it all the way to the great day. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, triumphed over the devil in the desert. And on the cross, He's won the victory. He's won it for Himself. He's won it for all of us who are His followers. And to prove it, He's coming back. Back with the angels, back with the saints who have died, back in triumphs, back to unite, vindicate, and to glorify His people forever. Truly in Him and through Him, we shall be provided for, we shall be pardoned, we shall be protected. Protected and promoted all the way to glory. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you thanking you for the message of this sixth and last petition of our Lord Jesus' prayer. We thank you, Father, for reminding us about the great spiritual battle that continues to be waged even today and also in our lives and hearts. And we thank you, Father, that not only do you diagnose our condition, but you also prescribe the remedy that you give us the weapons of prayer, that you give us the weapons of faith, 
that you give us the Holy Spirit, that you give us ultimately the victory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, may we all make use of all these means that you have given to us. May we use them. And may we continue to persevere in the faith, in the strength that you have promised, looking forward to the victory that is coming. In Christ we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.